is correct. Hi, everyone. I'm Bill Coffin, and welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. And today, we'll be discussing the golden era of arcade video games. Now, what is the golden age of arcade video games anyway? Well, it kind of depends on who you ask, since it was concurrent with two other closely connected phenomena, the rise of the home video game console in the late 1980s and the rise of the personal computer, which became, among other things, an incredible gaming platform in the 1980s. But the arcade era did a lot to kickstart both of those other eras, even if it proved to be far more short-lived than either of them. The golden age of arcade games only lasted for a few years, which is not a lot of time for game companies to come and go, for unprecedented technological innovation, and for games to become overnight legends and then be forgotten just as quickly. But it all happened just the same. The exact start and stop of this golden age is a matter of debate among industry historians, but today we'll make the case for it lasting from 1978 to 1983. It began in 1978 because that was the year that saw the release of Space Invaders, a global blockbuster that shattered everyone's idea of how successful and influential video games could really be. Space Invaders was so popular that in Japan, it caused a nationwide shortage of 100 yen coins so severe that arcade operators were required by law to bring their earnings to the bank twice a week. From then on, the rise of the arcade game as both a commercial powerhouse and a groundbreaking form of entertainment was assured. That is, until 1983, when it all very nearly screeched to a halt, thanks to a severe video game industry crash. Known in Japan as the Atari shock, the crash began in the home console market, where video game maker Atari had badly overestimated how many consoles it could keep selling to a world that already had too many of them. But Atari's catastrophe of overproduction, market saturation, and dwindling game quality was prevalent throughout the rest of the video game industry as well. In arcades, earnings from coin-op cabinets had already begun a long, slow death spiral from which they would never fully recover. From this point on, the days of the video game arcade were lit by a slowly dwindling twilight. But there was still plenty of great times to come. The age of the arcade would not end overnight, and there would be a great renaissance in the early 90s, thanks largely to the advent of two-player fighting games. But things would never be as good as they were before. That's the thing about golden ages. They all must end. And while this one lasted, it was a time of thrill and wonder that has deeply influenced subsequent generations of video games and video gamers. It would be aggressively nostalgic to claim that these early arcade games were the best ever made. To be honest, a lot of them have been justly forgotten over the years. But to enjoy them during this initial period was a special experience worthy of every quarter given to it. And that's why I'm so excited to talk about it now. With me today is Chuck E. Cheese token hoarder, Chris Crenshaw. Howdy, folks. Author of Mario's Field Guide to Mountain Gorillas, Joe Pace. Good evening. And Pac-Man Fever session guitarist, Tom Hespos. Hello, hello. Everyone, welcome. So... Before we get into our favorite games and what they mean to us, I'd like to talk about arcades themselves because this age of playing a game for a quarter was as much about where you play the games as it was about the games itself. You know, I know from my own experience, there was, you know, many different ways to experience these things from the really large commercial arcade you found at like a resort or at the shore or something to small mom and pop places that had one game kind of, you know, hunkered in the corner. So how did the places in which you played the games, how was that your entry for the games themselves? Joe, you want to start? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to relate a story from when I was very young. I mean, I, I always kind of come back to the fact that I'm a little bit younger than you guys. 
when I was perhaps seven years old and my older brother was not yet 10, we would walk up the street from my grandmother's house with a, a fistful of quarters to play at a convenience store, buy a little candy, play on, they'd always had only one cabinet at a time. And that was my first entry into the, the arcade style. Uh, later on, uh, we would do the, you know, the dream machine in the mall arcade, which was a far more classic arcade environment. Yeah, really for me, it was, it was very much that uh, standing there as a kid watching my brother you know, play for an hour on four quarters. Now, Tom, you grew up on Long Island, right? So I imagine yeah, there, there, so, there, I mean, there had to be like mom and pop operations nearby, kind of wherever you you were, right? Yeah, I mean, we we always had, you know, like I ended up, you know, growing up in a town that had a lot of terrific spots to play, but you'd have to kind of ride your bike around from store to store. The bar had a uh, Vanguard cocktail table. You know, there's a candy store there that had Donkey Kong, one of the wrestling games, uh, Satan's Hollow Machine. The video store had this, and you know. I've got a story about the deli in town that, uh, you know, had one of my favorite games in it. Basically, you had to ride everywhere in order to play. Where I really got exposed to arcades was like the mall arcade. So, you know, I remember from a very, very young age and, you know, my mom like is probably going to cringe if she ever hears this. But I remember her dropping me off at timeout at the mall with, you know, a quarter or two and she would go and do her shopping. And I was like five years old <laughs> and, and she would just leave me there. And it was totally okay. Like I never got in any trouble or anything. You know, I just remember like being able to entertain myself for, you know, an hour or two on like a quarter or, or maybe two quarters, just because, you know, back then it was, it was really nice, not only to play yourself, but also to watch like the action and see, you know, other people play the machines and like how good they could get. So there, there was a lot of spectator kind of quality to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, how about you? I grew up in a more rural setting than you guys. So, you know, there was always one machine I could ride my bike to. No parent would ever allow this ride these days. I mean, <laughs> insane. The same experience you guys described, I had, you'd go to the fried chicken place, they'd have a Donkey Kong. Pizza place might have a sit down scrambler. The only arcades I ever saw were people's birthday parties when we went to Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, mm. And that started when I was, you know, it, it was maybe 1981 or 1982, I think. Uh, about, about that, yeah. I think Nolan Bushnell of Atari fame actually founded Chuck E. Cheese. I think that was like his, his side hustle that became his hustle. That. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's a Nolan Bushnell thing. So, you know, th th that was really the only arcade in town that I knew of. You didn't get to go there. I mean, what parent would want to take you there <laughs> back then? <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, I, I was I was introduced to video games in ones and twos. Yeah. For me, you know, especially in the early days, before I could actually get on my bike and really go far from home, video games were very much constrained to a something you did on vacation. We would go to the Jersey Shore, go to the boardwalk or something, and you could actually see a great big arcade game there and tons and tons of games. Or like we went to Disney World. Remember, you know, at the, in the Contemporary Resort, they had a video game arcade that frankly boggled the imagination. It was just rows and rows and rows of video games. I'm it was sorry, just like, I have to interrupt for a second because my dad paid for a Disney World vacation one year and I spent all of my time in the Contemporary Arcade and he was so angry with me for being Dude, same. Oh, my, <laughs> my mom was so angry at me. It was 1984 and she was livid that I was constantly just run on down who could blame me it was like an arcade unlike anything i'd ever seen like when you watch tron right and flynn's arcade is this like crazy hollywood dream vision of an arcade 
the arcade in the contemporary, it wasn't quite as decked out with like neon lights and all that, but I mean, it was as magnificently huge. I mean, it was just like huge at everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There were so many games. You didn't have to wait for anything, which is just bonkers at the time. It was so crazy. So that was on one end of the spectrum. But then on the other end of the spectrum, and probably the more frequent for me was like, I would bike to like a local bowling alley that had a really kicking set of arcade games kind of in the back where the pinball games and the vending machines were. And I spent a lot of time there. And across the street from that was a pizza place that had a really good video game you know, section in the back as well, which is really, really quite awesome as well. And so when I got to the point when I could easily bike there, I was ping-ponging back and forth between those places all the time. They weren't a bona fide arcade, but a lot of arcades were just like just a room with games. They didn't have the full experience. And then sometimes you, like when I got older and I could drive, you can get to the mall, right? And like the mall arcades, they were more like what you see in movies, fully carpeted, dark as anything, almost like a kid's Las Vegas, right? It was like a casino for kids. But at the same time though, they had this weird scene where there were no adults there apart from the guys running the show, right? But the feel there was more like a pool hall and less like a family fun center. Teens of all ages, none of them were being supervised. And you had younger kids and older kids kind of like interacting in ways that normally wouldn't. And, you know, they get your smoking or whatever, you know. And it was just like this largely unstructured kind of culture. And that was, I think, part of the cool thing about it was that in playing games, I got to jump into this little world that my parents would not have brought me to. It wasn't inherently dangerous, but it wasn't exactly fully nailed down either. And it was just a cool thing. Like I grew up a little bit in this environment, having to learn how to deal with bigger, rougher kids who didn't necessarily want anything to do with me. It was like this far from Splinter's Clubhouse in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. Well, like I remember a lot of early, especially in the earlier days, a lot of video games had these cylindrical melt spots on them where people put their cigarette down while waiting to play or or while playing and they got so into it, like the cigarette burned in and like melted the console. Cigarette burns were common on a lot of the older cabinets. And like, (laughs) just to think of it in modern things, like, you know, why would they be so beaten up? Why would they be so dinged up? But that was just the thing. For the opportunity to recreate that, that sensation in that environment. I'm, I'm a New Hampshire guy. And here we have up in the Lakes region, uh, a place called Fun Spot, which is equal parts family fun center and uh, video game museum. It has over 250 of these cabinet arcade games. And you go in there and immediately you're transported not only to your own childhood, but literally to 1981, 82, because it smells like it. Nothing smells like uh, the early 80s uh, as much as Fun Spot. It's got the same carpet. It's got the somehow smells like cigarettes inside. It's that musty (laughs) atmosphere of electronics on the verge of failure. And it is magical. That is one thing that I really appreciated about any good arcade, whether it was a fun spot level experience or even just a room full of games where I was so sucked into what I was playing. I really just, I really got absorbed by them, which is that it was like going into an 8-bit Narnia for a while. Like you just walked in (laughs) and just you just forgot where you were for a long period of time. I remember like times I'd leave wherever I was playing video games and went back out in the world and I had to like stop and kind of reset my brain. Okay, like, oh wow, you know, bright light and okay. Yeah, you come out like Gollum. <laughs> princess. But at the same time though, my brain was so keyed up at video game frenetic pace of, you know, move faster, die, that I had to stop and like power off my brain a little bit and like settle back. Okay, I'm now back in the real world. It was a neat immersive experience that you really couldn't get in any other way. When you compared it, Bill, to being a kid's Vegas, it is that same feeling of being in a casino where like time ceases to have meaning and you're limited to a cup of quarters and the amount of stimulation that that can generate for you. And then when that's over and you ask your brain to go back to interpreting the world in a, in a three-dimensional, meaningful way, it can be very challenging. There is a crash, yeah. 
when you mentioned about the time you spend there, I have to temper that by saying, I spent a lot of time in arcades, but when I was in an arcade, I wasn't always playing the entire time. That was the other thing is that I inevitably did not have as much money as I had desire to play games, right? And so you had to really determine carefully which game was worth your 25 or 50 cents. I know it sounds like an old timer, like, oh, I paid a nickel for a soda kind of thing. But like when you're a kid with limited means and a game costs hard currency, you're not just going to throw a quarter into any game, like what game matters enough to play. You're making economic decisions. Well, yeah, right. There's an ROI. But you also spent a lot of time watching each other play games. Watching people play games was as much a thing as actually playing the games themselves. That also elevated it to a kind of a weird communal experience, and it kind of helped build this culture around the arcade experience as well. And I think because of all that, you got things like the coin line tradition, right, where people wanted to play next, they slapped the coin up on the screen, you know, and people had these unwritten rules of etiquette that kind of came up around how you behave around arcade games and how you behave when you're playing. You know, and the social currency of having a high score and all that sort of stuff. That was another part of the whole thing. You were playing these really cool games that you had never seen before. You were going to a place that was outside your house. It was a whole different experience, usually by yourself as a kid. And then also you were part of this emerging culture experience as well, which is different from what you had at home. And so it was a really transformative and kind of transportative experience. And it was, you know, not to elevate it too much, but like going to play video games is a really different thing. It really stepped me out of whatever I was doing that day. What's interesting about that is like, we all had different arcade experiences growing up. Everybody knows what that quarter means, you know, placed on the top of the cabinet or on the edge of the screen there. That's, that's, I got next. We've never discussed that, you know, beforehand. And yet we all know what that means. I mean, the (laughs) culture evolving and, you know, just getting out to every corner of the country, I think is kind of an amazing thing. It's like those nursery school rhymes or, or, you know, playground rhymes that travel the whole country. It's like a cultural phenom. There were a lot of rules that emerged that were kind of, they seem to emerge all over the place and all at once through no central rulemaking mechanism, which is you don't put up more than one coin on the coin line at once, right? That was really uncool. You didn't, you know, swipe each other's quarters. I mean, that's just straight up theft, but, you know, generally speaking, you don't do it. But then there's also things like it was really uncool to kibitz and talk about somebody's playing style while they're playing. That was deeply uncool. That would, that could get you a back fist. That was like something you just didn't do. No look back fist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do recall interactive audience player. Um, oh, great move. You know, like, I, I, oh, the sure. Feedback was there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The feedback was there. Ah, yeah. 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 Exactly. yeah. <laughs> it was in us. You know, we talk about, you know, Vegas, you don't comment on somebody's luck at the table, but you also wouldn't say like, oh, you really missed this opportunity or you should have ducked. Yes, there was yeah. no of that. Yeah. But whether you knew the people you were with around the machine or not, mm-hmm. that seamless interchange between player and audience, mm-hmm. you were there both to play and to watch. You were there to watch and be watched. And it was fun to play a game for an audience who could be appreciative of, you know, if you were having a great run at something and a couple of people you might not know. Yeah. We're watching going, oh, hey, man, sweet move there. Yeah. And it was like, you might, like you said, it might, you might be a 10-year-old kid and a 17-year-old kid. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. And, and it's like, these people have nothing in common. Oh. Except you just made a really sweet move on Rolling Thunder. Yeah, right. Straight up, my favorite moments from my arcade game experiences are all closely tied to that, not just the game itself, but it's the human interaction of the people you're playing with or the people who are around you. And that, that creates the story, you know, and, and when we get to my moment of truth, mine is very much based on one of those moments. But I mean, that was a huge part of it, you know, and that's one thing I really love. And I think when you look at how this era has affected later generations of gaming as the technology has created different kinds of game experiences. One thing I saw was, you know, some designers like indie game designers were returning to kind of couch co-op games. And I was like, Oh, that's such a great thing because 
to get a bunch of people all looking at the same screen at once while they're playing, that's a really unique thing. It's not quite like multiplayer, you know, that to have that communal, you're side by side. It's great. Like if my son and I are sitting on the couch next to each other playing Street Fighter with each other, that's a whole lot different than if we're multiplaying. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a neat thing. And I, I wish we can get all more you have to do. All you have to do is get six kids, 12 and under, and only one iPad. And then you get that experience because one kid will be playing and the others are vultures hovering over them. <laughs> They're all around it, yeah. Yeah, That's exactly. Just clustered. Yeah, yeah. So so the, the dynamic is still there. <laughs> Excellent. You know, we've been talking about arcades quite a lot. Let's start talking about the games themselves. I, mean, I know we've all got our favorites. Joe, I know you're a huge Dig Dug fan. So tell me a little bit about Dig Dug. Why do you love this game so much? Because it's an awesome game. And I remember it was, a, it was a pretty popular one. It's got a cool little history to it. Why do you dig this game, man? There's a, a couple of reasons. Um, part of it is the praxis of it. It's the first one I remember. And you never forget your first love, right? And my, this is the game that they had at the convenience store that my brother and I would go up and, and we would play. And so it was the first one that we, I won't say mastered, but the first one that we developed the facility with. Even now, not long ago, there's a restaurant near our house uh, that has a bunch of games on the mezzanine above it. And one of them is Dig Dug and my kids watched me play and I still got it, baby. I could still, you know, <laughs> go around and blow those suckers up. And it's so simple. The interface is, is, is very, very simple. And I, I still think some of the best ones, whether it's Frogger or Pac-Man Classics, yeah. right? The interface remains a deeply uh, simple. For those who haven't actually played Dig Dug, how would you describe the gameplay of Dig Dug? Well, it's a maze game. Uh, initially, you start out in the center and you dig your way, th- you're underground, and you're, you're, your little avatar is digging his way through these tunnels. And there are pockets of bad guys um, that you have to go around. And when you encounter them, you have to, um, you have a little bicycle pump almost that connects to them. And you've got to pump real fast with the pump button, and then they blow up. And while you're doing that, though, your character is frozen while he's doing this pumping. And it takes three seconds to pump. But in that time, you're vulnerable. Other things are coming to get you. And they may be coming through the tunnels that you've dug. Later, as the game progresses, they begin to turn into ghosts and float through the underground to get you. So you, while you're chasing them, they're chasing you. And it is a uh, hunt and be hunted game at the same time. And sometimes they're running away and sometimes you're better off letting them go and, and <laughs> turning the screen. And sometimes you're trying to chase them down for the maximum points. And the, the screen gets increasingly crowded as it, as it moves along and as you move through the levels. When I talk about the simplicity of it, it is a very basic interface, and yet the speed of it and the amount of data that you're encountering on the screen as far as potential hostiles continues to steadily ramp up as you go along. And so that stress level, but it's wonderful. It's like Tetris. You know how when they... The farther you go, the faster the stuff is following. But you're in this, you, you develop this groove where you don't care. You can send those things down at light speed. I am moving. I am in it. And the other thing I loved about, about Big Dog 2 is that it's one of those games that you have to play on the, the cabinet because it has that tactile of the, the stick, the single knob top joystick is there. And the sharp hairpin turns that you've got to make. The four directions to be stick, done. and that matters. Exactly. It has to be done on that equipment. Otherwise, you can't replicate that experience. Yeah, you know, I've played, I mean, I've played a lot of these classic arcade games in the years since on different kinds of platforms, whether they've been emulated for a desktop computer 
or if I saw them, you know, uh, perfectly emulated for like a PlayStation um, or just mm-hmm. playing on something called, you know, MAME, which is multi-arcade machine emulator, which is a program mm-hmm. you put on your laptop and play with your keyboard or whatever. And it's like each of those experiences, it's so different when you don't have the actual hardware the game was programmed with. It delivers a unique game experience. You can still play these games, but it's not the same, you know, and I always do enjoy it on the original hardware because, yeah, it constrains you to very specific kind of muscle memory and it's a unique kind of thing which is which is yeah it, it works best on the cabinet i always found it deeply disappointing with dig dug it was a good strategy but you could um if you were getting chased you could pump them up like twice and then run through them while they were deflating yeah. i always found it deeply disappointing when i didn't finish the pump and get that satisfying pop you know yeah <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah well the thing about dig dug that knocked me out was that it's a very cute game the character is adorable he's this little like, like a smurf little... he's a little smurf essentially how come this he's the the basis for smurfs didn't he come yeah. first I mean, he's this little blue guy, little white outfit running around, you know, he's just rotund, he's adorable, you know, yeah. and, the, and the bad guys are kind of cute too. You got these little puka kind of round orange ball guys, I guess, what, Figar? Dinosaur dragon. Little, yeah. Yeah. And they're adorable. But at the same time, the game is like shockingly violent. I mean, in the, in the way that like, you know, you pump these guys up and they get bigger, bigger than Damn, they opened like as a kid. I was like, wow, that, that's a Graphic. thing. Like that's, that, <laughs> it wasn't like, it wasn't blood and guts or anything, but you see these guys pop like a balloon and you just kind of felt bad for them. Like, you know. Like, I never felt to... bad for them. Because you know, Figar <laughs> would roast you like no. it, it, and you're dead. Well, that's it just true. it. They didn't yeah. feel bad for me. <laughs> I always felt bad for them. But Tom, to your point, I could not just pump them up twice and run past. I had to finish it. And it's like, I, I can't tell you how many times I died in Dig Dug, vainly working that bicycle pump while some bad guy just went past their comrade who's halfway to being blown apart and just bum rushed me and took me out. I mean, every time, every time that hit me. That's why I wasn't good at the game. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I could not give up that pump. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to know when to bail. You got to know when to pull your cord. <laughs> you know when to hold go back. Yeah, exactly. You got to do good. <laughs> The late, great Kenny Rogers. you got to know when to walk away. There's another thing about Dig Dug that was, for me, a big thing. And one of the reasons why I was so terrible at it, which is that Dig Dug came out in 1982, which is arguably the greatest year of arcade game development in history, straight up. I mean, especially in this golden age, so many great games came out in 82. I mean, the years around them were fantastic, too. It was just a murderer's row of great games for just a number of years. But 82 in particular had a huge number of games that I know and love very, very much and were deeply influential, and Dig Dug was one of them. During that time, a lot of the games were quite different from each other, had some really cool innovations. But this is the first game where I noticed the music quite a lot. And it wasn't just an opening theme. It was as you move, with every footstep, you advance, like, the meter of the music. So as long as you're moving this little... It sounded like a little electronic banjo playing, like yeah, and it was almost like yakety sax, right? And you're just like running, running around, and there were so many times in the game where I didn't do the right tactical move just because I was so into hearing the music. I would just keep taking the long way around just to hear myself make the music and get taken out. But it was one of those things where I just, you know, I loved the sound of it. It was a game I didn't mind doing poorly at. You stopped the music stopped like the second you let off that joystick. It was so. <laughs> well, the wonderful thing I, I love to you know, wrap up with this is that it sucks you in because this is not one of those games where it's hard from the get go. Part of the brilliance I think of these arcade games was that the first couple of levels were, were placid and fairly easy and like 
you know, with Frogger, there's only a couple of, you know, cars on the road, or, you know, there's only a few asteroids, you know, like, okay, I can do this. And before long, you're in the soup. And that was, I think, part of the brilliance of all of these games, and, and Dig Dug is certainly one of, of that caliber. This was a game like Ms. Pac-Man that I noticed that it also appealed to everybody. It was one of the things where if you had like a rare parent in the arcade, like they would, there was a game they could see themselves mm-hmm. playing. Like my dad would play Dig Dug and he was not a gamer at all. And the rare case where he was with us, you know, we're in an airport or something. We go jumping in the arcade to play some things and he came with us. This was the game he would put a quarter in. Again, he just, it just tickled his funny bone. He thought it was hilarious and he really liked it. You'd see girls playing it. You'd see just, you know, all sorts of people playing it. And it was like one of those universal appeal type things. It was just, and I think that was kind of a cool thing about it as well. I'm probably the only person who felt bad about the people being blown up, but you know, whatever. When you drop the rock on them, you know. Yeah, that was always awesome, dropping the rock. That was awesome. Big point score. I could not make that um, happen. I, re- I and then at the top, oh, I, I couldn't make that happen at all. So hard. It was of an age where, like maze games were a big thing at that point. You know, and that was probably one of the last great maze games. You had other ones like you had the Pac Man series, of course. We had um. There's a great game from the early days called Rally X. Oh, I love that game. Rally X was so awesome. This little little Formula One car driving through this maze, trying to keep people away from yes. you, which is really cool. But one that I really loved is called Mr. Do. <laughs> oh, man. Mr. Do was the best. It was very much like Dig Dug in its own way. Just it was a little little faster. And rather than having a bicycle pump, you had this little ball you threw down the hallway. And it bounced off the walls. And it was kind of erratic. Like you weren't quite sure if it was going to go around a corner and like get stuck in some place and you couldn't find it. But it was it was free form like Dig Dug. You could make your own course and all that. And it was pretty frantic i mean it was it was you know a, a whole lot of fun so i, you I was be careful really, really describing good. that game because after a while it starts to sound like a bad acid trip or something i mean like what these guys were on when they designed that game was <laughs> i have no idea but it was just bonkers <laughs> i've heard stories at atari that it was kind of like fast times at ridgemont high most of the time they were party atmosphere and how they got anything done i don't know it was just like just everything that sort of came together the last second that age of games though had so much innovation going on and like i talking about the class of 82 you know chris i know that the game you know talked about is from the class of 82 as well right yes it is when you say that it's the arguably the greatest year of, of, of video games ever in the arcade i think it's barely arguable sure you could try but why why <laughs> it's just so good like i said when i grew up i lived in a relatively rural area we were relatively poor and you know I, I might get a quarter if we were at a pizza place uh, that had a video game I'd play a game before dinner the only places I ever went other than Chuck E. Cheese for friends birthdays was bars with my dad <laughs> he would get off work and want to go see his friends and he'd have me so I'd come with and uh, you know this was the 70s <laughs> it, was the, it, was the, it was the 70s yeah. it was the 80s yeah. So, I mean, you know, he, he'd give me a couple bucks and I'd play whatever cabinets they had. And at the time that this moment of truth for me happened, I don't know. I, I was a big Defender fan. I love Defender. What a great game. Defender's good. Uh, I sucked at it, though. I could not get my hands around. I couldn't figure out the controls. Like, it was too much, too much for me. So this probably was 1982 I'm talking about, in fact. My, my dad, by the way, was incredible at Miss Pac-Man. He was way better than I ever have been ever on the greatest day of my life. It was unreal. He, he could destroy that game. And it was the only video game I ever saw him play. I asked him, why do these places never have Defender? Because it's a bar and people are drunk. And 
there's just too many controls on that machine. Ms. Pac-Man is on all the bars because it's simple. Yeah. It resonated with me. So shortly after that conversation, I go to Chuck E. Cheese for a friend's birthday party and I encounter Joust. Joust is one of the most simple video games ever created. It's probably as simple as any video game. There, there are three inputs, left, right, flap. All right, so can you describe for the people who haven't played Joust what the point of Joust is all about and what, what, what is the gameplay like? Joust is, uh, you know, you mentioned acid trips earlier. Joust is an acid trip of a game where you are a knight on the back of an ostrich. And uh, it, that is if you are player one. Your task is to kill all the buzzards and swoop up their eggs before they hatch into new buzzards. One unique thing about Joust was that it had simultaneous play and it it was neither cooperative nor competitive it was whatever you wanted it to be you could fight each other you could defend each other you could and would accidentally kill each other you've got these three controls and in it and especially when you've got two players playing you, you are doing competitive calculus in your head whether you know it or not out of three controls comes that kind of complexity. And I think that's amazing. When you're moving your character left and right, and then we hit that flat button, uh, like the flat button, it boosts up a little bit, but there's always gravity, right? So you're always falling back down. And when you're moving, you're always moving on some kind of arc, right? Depending on, exactly. on how fast you're moving. And it's like, it's hard to judge where you're going to be. And, and the thing is, when you have other characters coming at you, they're these little bad guys on top of these buzzards, and you each have a lance. And when the two hit each other, whoever's got the higher lance wins, right? If they hit exactly the same level they both bounce off each other but if the one's higher then the other guy gets knocked off his bird and turns into an egg or dies or whatever you've always got to stay higher and well explained i missed the whole point <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know and to stay higher without bouncing off the roof you are i mean you're literally doing calculus in your head yeah uh, you're calculating rates of change in your ascent and your descent and you know differential acceleration on multiple different things on the screen. And out of three controls, it's that's crazy. I, I love it, I love it. I think it is the most perfect video game ever designed, personally. I remember having a big aha moment with this game when I realized you didn't even have to get your lance on the guy. Like for the first couple of games, I you know I thought you had to have your lance higher. Like, no, you could just swoop down on him from above with your butt and just done. <laughs> Damn. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I love to get real high, and I'd flap so fast, I hit the top of the screen, and I'd bounce off like a volleyball, like bang, bong, and just smack somebody. Oh, it was great. But that game got hectic. It was one of those games where, because when you're flying around, you're on these little floating stone platforms. And so it's not exactly a maze, but they are obstacles you have to navigate around. And the farther along you get in the game, they take away more and more of those platforms. And so it just becomes this big open area and it's really hard to navigate and not get crushed. Things are getting crazy fast. It's always nice to have something above you. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> there was something else about Joust that for me, it was the first time it really introduced the notion of a boss monster. Because if you took too long in a level of Joust, the dreaded pterodactyl showed up and it announced itself with this sound right and i mean i have a pavlovian response to that sound if i hear that i just cringe and my blood curdles I'm like oh no here it comes and the pterodactyl was the game's way of going look hustle it up get off the screen right there are quarters to be made here <laughs> to kill it you had to hit it right in the mouth right it was opening its mouth and the hitbox on this thing was like two pixels so it was not big 
I will tell you that I remember the first time I killed the pterodactyl, I felt like a freaking superhero. I was like, yeah, I know. And the whole crowd went nuts. And I was like, oh my gosh, you killed the pterodactyl, you know? And it was like, like slaughtering this mythic creature. It was such a huge fluky thing. But it Nobody saw cool. me do it, Bill. Oh. <laughs> I actually got good at it. I actually got to the point where I figured out a pretty good strategy for killing the pterodactyl. And I would be like, I'd hang on. And I'd like wait for him. I'm like, come on, bring it. You know? And it was like my big bragging point in that game. That's how you get the big scores. <laughs> I was never good at Joust, which made me sad because I think with Joust, what I remember most vividly about it is it had the best artwork. If you're talking about the side of the cabinet and the, you know, and that's the other thing about all these games, right? They would advertise it and it would look gorgeous. It was, it was like something you'd see on the side of a band mm, yeah. or on the back of a jacket, right? It was this gorgeous airbrushed, beautiful stuff. And the Joust stuff was so beautiful. And then it, you, the game starts, and it's like three pixels. One's red, one's blue. One's, you're like, wait a minute, that's yeah. not what's on the side of the on the side of the cabinet. But it was it was so beautifully rendered. Man. And, I, and I think that I think from the age of arcade, that golden yeah. age that you talked about, Bill. One of the things that I really enjoyed and still enjoy now when I see the machines is either the concept art or the art that's on the machines themselves. And Joust was the best. A video game historian will probably set me right on this, but I always got the feeling that as video games in this era, as they really blew up, I mean, they took a serious chunk out of the, the pinball game scene, right? And pinball mm -hmm. makers just couldn't make as many tables. But those games had a tradition of just fantastic artwork as well. I mean, the artwork was a huge yeah. part of what sold the game. And yes. I always got a feeling that like as pinball declined, these artists had to do something. So they had them doing these pinball level pieces of artwork on the sides of the cabinet, which is great. And it always kind of bummed me out when you go to a big arcade and the games are packed in in a tight row. You yes. couldn't see the sides of the game. You know, you see like the end and it was always like a real chafe when – you went to one and some game that you knew had crappy cabinet art was at the end of the row. Like, oh man, why can't, you know, why, why can't a better game be here because it's good to look at. Why can't we have Centipede down here with this? Oh, guy? Centipede had a great piece of cabinet artwork. That was, that, that one is. I really, really loved. That was just so, so, so great. I, I consider it my favorite of all time, I think. And Centipede is right up there on my favorite games. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so good. There's another one you have to play with the original equipment. You got to play it with the yeah. trackball. Otherwise, it's just not the yeah, same. I've, I've tried playing tra Centipede on a trackpad, and it's close, but it is not the same. Having the full range of motion with a single finger is not what they intended because it's it's the you had to move the ball and then move the ball the other way to kind of counter it. It requires a whole lot more energy to actually make it happen. And uh, it was neat how some of these games had a physical component to them. They required your body to work in a specific way to work the game. And again, it was kind of like, pinball or some of the older arcade games where there was a physicality to them which is kind of neat you know and after a while if you got good at a certain game like you had the muscles to prove it you, know, you weren't like jacked of course but it's like you had like a certain level of muscle memory that you can come back to a game years later and you get back on like oh i haven't played you know galaga in three years and within 50 cents you're like right back in it <laughs> it's like the like those re those <laughs> yeah, reflexes yeah. died hard you know or the callus you know what's funny about pinball machines though is like the thing that took a lot of the physicality away from the pinball machines was the flipper. Pinball machines didn't always have flippers to flip the mm, ball yeah. back up. You, would, you know, hit the thing and it would come down and like you would give it a little nudge and uh, you know nudge the machine back and forth in order to uh, get high yeah, scores. Yeah. But getting back to Jaws for a second, I mean, Chris, you're talking about the perfect design. I know Williams Electronics, which made the game, they were actually really worried about that game. They were worried that the controls were too risky they were trying to follow up defender 
and they followed up Defender with like the anti-Defender as far as controls go. Because Defender's kind of fiddly. I mean, it's great. It's an awesome game. I never had the manual dexterity to figure it all out. It is hard to play. It was like one or two more buttons than I could really handle, you know, but I loved it. Joust is very different. And I know the execs were like, huh, huh, not sure this is actually going to work. And they're very pleasantly surprised, you know, because the game's controls are so perfect. They're, they're so, so great. Is it co-op? Is it deathmatch? The answer is yes. Like that was, that was the first game I remember of it being like that. And it was so great, you know, because you're playing, because you mentioned player one, you're a knight on an ostrich. Player two, you're a knight on a stork. And I actually loved being the stork. I thought it was cool, but I always had to like jump in on my brother's game and we we're playing. And inevitably there's like, Bill, you killed me. Tom, what are you doing? You know, and all this sort of stuff. And inevitably the co-op, over a long enough period of time, it turned into a death. It breaks down. Yeah, yeah. It, breaks, it breaks down, right? <laughs> the social construct, everybody had like one gimme and very quickly it, 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 it turned, you know? I think that influenced other games down the road. I mean, you think of games like, you know, Mario Brothers, Rampage, Gauntlet, Double Dragon, and these are all great games in their own right, but they all kind of have that great, you are working collaboratively, but if you really wanted to, you could just <laughs> turn savage on each other and inevitably in the heat of the moment, you did. And that was a really fun part of it is knowing like sooner or later, this is going to stop being friendly and nobody means for it necessarily, or sometimes they did. My brothers would be like really, really chafed because a previous game in Gauntlet went wrong or something, or a previous game in Double Dragon went wrong, and this is the game they're going to get even. And it's just the game was just like a disaster from the start. Oh, blood feuds. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the designers know what they're doing. The only thing they have to do to make it competitive, you put a potion, you put a treasure chest, you put that down on the ground, and suddenly your players are working against each other. It's Dude, smart. that was mine. Yeah. They, uh, they even foreshadowed it for you. Shots do not hurt other Yet. players. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> okay, we'll get a couple of boards yeah. into this. Yeah, my son and I were playing Gauntlet the other day, and it quickly yeah, just evolved. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you'd, you would shoot things that other people needed just so, like, well, I can't have it. You can't have it either. Ding, like, I needed that. Yes, you did. That's why I shot it, you know, and, it kind of created the, the whole the, the multiplayer deathmatch, I think. That sort of thing got started, I think, with games like Joust. And that was one of the first ones I remember large numbers of people would gather around the game to watch people play because it was so intense. And people were always wondering, like, what was going to happen? Like, people got really, I mean, at least in my experience, they got very invested in what was happening on a Joust screen. I agree, yeah. I saw more of that with Joust than anything up until maybe Street Fighter times. Well, speaking of that, that's a great segue because... I know Tom's game very much walks into that whole games as combat thing. So Tom, tell us about the game you want to talk about and give us a quick rundown of what this game is and how you played it, what it's all about. I got to share the locale first because like the reason why I picked this game, this game came uh, later, it came in 85, technically outside the golden age, but it was the first game that made me feel like a superhero. And there was always a deli in uh, uptown Waiting River <laughs> where I grew up known as Ephraim's Deli. It was, you know, Ephraim, the guy who uh, owned it. It was probably one of the nicest delis you have ever seen. It was like always super clean. There's all this like really cool, expensive looking neon all over it. Everything was just like super top notch. Ephraim being a guy from the Middle East, of course, you know, living in white suburbia, you can't have somebody own a business from, uh, you know, a foreign country without it being suspicious. So there was always this sort of like, you know, people saying, oh, you know, that guy's like involved in drugs. That's why his deli's so nice, blah, blah, blah. You know, all the ugliness yeah. that comes along with living in so suburbia. Unfair. Anyway, 
Uh, you know, this guy always had a couple of machines out front. You would never see like a Donkey Kong machine in Ephraim's Deli. You would never see Pac-Man or Dig Dug or any one of these sort of mainstream games. His were always like Rygar and Rastan and Legends of Cage and like these sort of like tier two games. Sweet. But they were still that were so great. Yeah, they, they were, were so good. Yeah, yeah. They're not the games that lead off. But a- like every time we walk in there and there's a new game, we're like, what? You know, what yeah. is this thing? But like very quickly got into it. <laughs> One day, you know, me and a group of my friends go in there and there's this game called Yair Kung Fu. And we're like, what the heck is this? How do you even pronounce that? What, what, like, what is this thing? And it was, you know, a very simple game. Or so, you know, so it seemed at the time, four-way, you know, directional or eight-way directional joystick and a punch and a kick button. And that was it. You controlled this little guy named Oolong who had this sort of like superpower of being able to like jump over opponents that he was fighting against. But he had all these like really cool sick karate moves. You could use the jump and the or the, the punch and the kick button with different uh, directions in the joystick to do new cool moves and everything. So you know, my friends and I got really heavily into this game for the for the short period of time that it was in the deli, and got really good at it. Probably. Um, uh, I want to say almost like a dozen opponents that Oolong has to fight on his way to, uh, you know, the end of the game. You know, there was a point where everybody died, which was this guy named Blues, who was basically the mirror image of Oolong. They say he's based on Bruce Lee, but like he was a guy when you fought him, you know, you might get a couple of hits in, but then he'd be like, boom, 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 and you were dead instantly. Who is going to beat Blues? Because he is a badass. Nobody seems to be able to beat him. Got a crowd of friends around. There's quarters on top of the machine. It's like I got very competitive. Everybody, you know, hovered over. I've got somebody to my left. I got somebody to my right. I got people over their shoulders, people over their shoulders. So, like, I got a crowd going here. And, you know, I make it through the first set of guys. If you manage to get a perfect score beating somebody, you got a free guy. So, like, I started getting a stack of free guys. And I'm like, I'm getting towards blues here at the end. And I'm like, hmm, I'm, I, I have a shot here, theoretically. Like, I'll have at least a few guys to, to play with him and, and, you know, see if I could beat him. Sure enough, through just luck of button mashing, like, I got in maybe a couple of planned moves. After that, it was just like, bam, 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 bam. And blues goes down. And everybody goes bonkers because nobody knows what happens next. This is the first time anybody's ever beat it. And we're all standing there and the screen cycles and it goes back to the beginning. Ah, this (laughs) sucks. (laughs) But, you know, like it was on the bus the next day. Everybody's a Tom beat blues. It was super cool, you know, blah, blah, blah. So like that was the first game. Like I felt like I got good enough at and like I was able to put on a show for friends. (laughs) I don't remember this game, but... I do remember playing a lot of Mike Tyson knockout, which had that same dynamic of like, which level did you get to and who was, was it bull or who was it that took you out? And you, the, the conversation on the bus was like, where are you? And you just said a name. You didn't say I was on level seven. You said, here's the person that. Yeah. Now, Yair Kung Fu is such a great game for so many reasons. And uh, I remember playing it back in the day. It was not, I, I didn't get to play it often for much the same reason. It was never in any one place for long, right? So I never got a chance to really get good at it, but it was super cool and I really liked it. But I seem to recall, did this game have a continue feature on it? You could continue, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
um you know there and there were patterns that like got quickly established so like you know a lot of the time you were trying to jump all over you know people and try to avoid getting hit uh but you wanted to land like close to them so you get a couple of shots in and then take off again so there was like a, almost like a rhythm to the game but the rhythm went out the window with like the last couple of guys that you had to face so like you get a yeah. lot of people who would get right up there and then just die and give up because they, you know, they just couldn't beat the next guy. <laughs> Probably <Yeah. so. laughs> Well, the cool thing about games like this is that because you're fighting these named characters, right? And they, they didn't have big backstories, but they had just a little bit enough. You had, you know, Buchu and Star and Nuncha and Pole and Beatles and all these guys had like their own signature weapon, their own signature look. Star, I think, was actually one of the very few female characters of any video game oh, yeah, she at had, like, the time. Body suit on it was you know throwing it, yeah stars um, <laughs> but what was cool about that is when you lost to one of these guys it felt a little personal right because you, you lost to a character you didn't just it wasn't because like, so many of these games especially the early games that didn't have continues like you were just playing until the game ground you down right it was you just kept going and it got faster and more complex and eventually you knew you were out how long can you last and with something like this it's same deal but like you want to beat each guy. And when finally one of them standing over you and you're like, oh man, like, screw you, dude. Like you want to get back at that one guy. Like it felt personal to me, you know? There were characters. I mean, nobody holds a grudge against Blinky and Pac-Man. You know, like, you'd hold a grudge. Nobody remembers that it was Blinky. That <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it, but but you remember it was Beetle that beat <laughs> Exactly. One of the things that I think is cool about Yair Kung Fu is that it was the first game I can remember where you didn't have lives. You just had a health bar, right? Like the dynamic was different. It wasn't like one hit and you're down. It's like you could take multiple hits and you could feel your health getting whittled down and it creates this sense of franticness. And that health bar thing became a huge game design feature in infinite games going forward. But I don't recall there being a health bar in games before that. And it was, a, it made for a very different experience and it made you feel that fight much more viscerally. I mean, it was like you were in a fight because you could be doing poorly and then you can come back and there's like back and forth and it was, you could rally and it was a different kind of, kind yeah, of experience. And, and, and once again, music enters into it. Like, like go back and then, you know, get your health bar about halfway down. Like this weird start, it's sort of like nervous music starts playing in the background. Like the music changes when you get to half health. Yeah. It's nervous and it, it trips you up if you're not careful. <laughs> Another thing about video game music that's just fantastic. I suppose it was Karate Champ that was the first one-on-one -on -one fighting game. That, of course, did not have a health bar. You got full and half. I think maybe this was the first one that did. Well, yeah, because Karate Champ, which I played a lot of. So Karate Champ was different in a couple meaningful ways because you could play it against the computer, but really the juice there with people playing it against each other is straight head to head, right? And it was a funky game. So you, you played with twin joysticks and the moves were completely based on what combination of, you know, the left one goes up, the right one goes back, you know, that sort of thing. And you had to master all these different moves. So there was that. So it was a hard game to play. So a lot of people didn't really get didn't get good at oh, it. Yeah. One summer, my brother and I decided we're going to master this game, and we would have these epic throwdowns in Karate Champ. And it would inevitably end like we're doing these crazy wild moves, and it would end by somebody just going bip with like a front punch. Like, oh, dude, really? Like, <laughs> come on! You're hit me with that half point move, you jerk! <laughs> oh, yeah. oh no, I, I was it was crazy, and and that game we we got so into that game after a while. Because <laughs> I grew up with two brothers, and so there's always like a three three way field of conflict in my house, right? And if my two brothers were getting into it, into it, and I wanted to get under my brother Tom's skin, if my brother Frank said something to him, like he gave him a sick burn, I would go, 
full point <laughs> karate champ and you'd be like man shut up you know that was like because you only got that somebody like kicked you in the head really hard you know or it was a point i'd be like half point like enough out of you man quiet you know um but but yeah but <laughs> well i must have played that game maybe three times in the arcade because you'd put a quarter in it and two seconds later the game would be over and you didn't know why <laughs> You had no idea why. I, I, that, yeah. It was just, it was like one of those test your strength games. <laughs> it kind of was. Well, yeah, and, and we learned it because we were on vacation and there was a small arcade. We didn't like the other games. This is the one we're like, well, we'll just learn this one. We're just going to stuck with this one. We'll just figure this one out, you know? Because um, it was so hard, you know? The thing with Karate Champ is if you landed a hit on somebody, that was it. And it was like tournament karate. So it was kind of like a sports game in which there was fighting, whereas Yaya Kung Fu was like combat. That was like the end half hour of a great Kung Fu yeah. movie where the hero just works his way through this phalanx of named characters, each with their own style, and you had to adapt to each character. And it was so unique. I don't remember a game at that time that really felt like that. I mean, so many different things were happening in that game at once. It was really, really, it felt really groundbreaking, and it was like this super cool game. And it always bummed me out it didn't get more recognition than it did because I thought it was a really pretty astonishing game, even though at the time I was not that good at it. Like, I, I only knew of the one machine in the deli. And then, you know, like, you know, when the, when the computer games thing started to come out and all of a sudden there was a Commodore 64 version of the game, I'm like, wait, wait this was good enough, like, in the arcades for it to have its own? And then all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, yeah, like, we had a machine down the block from us. I didn't realize how popular it was. I thought it was yeah. like a little cheesy one-off, like, everything else that came through that deli. <laughs> yeah. So did I when I first saw it. These games did a lot to lay the groundwork for that 1990s renaissance of arcade games that really came with Street Fighter II, The World Warrior, which that game landed like a freaking meteor. I mean, I was in school, I was in college, I came home and my, you know, and where I went to college, there were not many video games to be played. There was there was a little kind of burger place in town that had a, an arcade which is pretty decent it didn't have fighting games and there's a truck stop that i'd go to eat, eat at every once in a while that had some video games but again didn't have didn't have street fighter so i came home my friends who you know were like still playing games and they're like dude you've got to play street fighter and i remember the whole scene was all about street fighter and people playing street fighter and that was like the intensity around that game was just it was it was bananas right b-a-n-a-n-a-s bananas it was just it was just out of hand. I have never seen a more intense communal experience around a game than I have around the Street Fighter 2 game. I mean, it was just just really, it, that game brought something out of people because the characters are so unique and the fighting styles are so unique. People could get good at a particular character. And you can see why from that game, this massive fan of other games kind of came out. And it was neat to see arcades kind of have this Indian summer of a couple of years where it was just basically all fighting games all the time, right? <laughs> you know, it's like going to the arcade meant to go play a fighting game. And I was like, well, which one do you like? Are you a Street Fighter guy? Are you a Mortal Kombat guy? Are you some, are you, are you like that RC Cola type SNK type dude, you know, like playing the. Are you a weird pit fighter? <laughs> oh, yeah, right. yeah, right. Like, no, man, Primal Rage. Okay, back off, you know? <laughs> yeah, there were all these, all these fighting games. And it was like, that's all it ever was which that kind of got old on its own, but it was neat to see that happen. But that goes back to IR Kung Fu in a very, a very big way. I could, I could never be good at the fighting games. I just was never able to get my arms around them. And I, I don't know if like by then I was, that's when I was in high school and started doing other things, but I wanted badly to like the, what was the one they came out with like X-Men versus 
Capcom? Is that what it was? Or well, there were a bunch. Like... So there was X-Men Children of the Atom, which I played like it was my damn job. At the time, I wasn't reading the X-Men comics anymore, and I thought the character of Omega Red was just stupid, stupid, stupid. But he was great in the video game. I loved <laughs> You shot these whips out and threw people around. I loved him. He was great. Oh, yeah. He had that one. Then he had X-Men versus Street Fighter. And yeah, that one. X-Men yeah. versus Capcom, because Capcom owed Street Fighter. So it was like X-Men versus Street Fighter and all the other games Capcom owned. And then it was Marvel versus... Then you had Marvel superheroes which is just an, a thing, again, same company, just not the X-Men anymore. It's like, you know, all the other Marvel guys. And then you had a Marvel Street Fighter versus Capcom, I think, which is the final evolution of, of all that at that point. And then at this point, now you're getting up to like, you're getting pretty late in the game. It's like late 90s that a lot of these games came out. And this is like at a point when people just weren't doing coin-op anymore. And the games that were coming out were the exact same game you could play on a console in terms of, processing power right. so it's like unless you had the physical controls that made a different experience it wasn't much sense in going to their arcade to play these unless they're at a place where you're going to be for some other reason like a dave and busters where you're going to go have a beer and hang out or you're going to have it be at a restaurant and play it wasn't that same kind of gaming the only the only time i remember playing video games in the you know late 90s is if we were waiting for a movie maybe like if yeah you were, you know, yeah a movie you were a half hour early for the movie or whatever <laughs> yeah. like let's go play a little bit of this and, and that sort of thing it also got to be the point where it's like a dollar to play. You know, you're, you're pumping quarters into these things. And making all the money. I, I also do love, and this won't make the cut, but I love the fact that no matter what game we bring up, Bill played hours and hours of it. Dude. <laughs> the amount of time that you must have spent Man, to the eternal consternation of my parents, to the internal frustration of my guidance counselors, uh, to the frustration of the proprietors who wish that I would go somewhere else and rather not hang out in their place. I mean, dude, I, if I had a quarter, I spent it on these things. I mean, it was, I, I really, I was drawn to the games. Like they were just so much fun and they were so, you know, they took you to a different place and they fired my imagination. And this is that time when I was getting into lots of other things too. Like I was getting really heavy into Dungeons and Dragons and really heavy into comic books and really having all these different things that fed my imaginative landscape in, in a really meaningful way and video games did that they just hooked me in and so i really i really liked it but to be fair a large part of it was also the fact that i had access to a lot of them so i could easily ride to like i said there was a bowling alley that had like a dozen great games anytime right across the street from it was a pizza place it would have a dozen games right next to that was a supermarket that only had two games in the foyer but whoever was in charge of determining what games were going to be there, they were on point because they always had like two great games. I mean, I would play like Road Blasters and Black Tiger and all these great games just forever just at the local lane co. It was just the best. But yeah, no, I played them an inordinate amount of time, uh, <laughs> Joe. <laughs> you know, when we're thinking about the fighting games though, and I was talking about Street Fighter, there's a particular story that I'd, I'd love to come back to. It involves somebody who's not in the podcast. So I'm not going to get too deep into it, but it's one of those moments where the, the experience is what's happening on the screen, but also what's happening around the game. And I think that brings me to, to my moment of truth, which involves a game that is probably not my favorite of all time. I loved it. I was good at it, but I wasn't great at it, but it is definitely the source of what has to be my single favorite arcade game story I have to tell. And the game is Spy Hunter. It's a nod to the James Bond cue car kind of chases. It's a top-down driving game, vertically scrolling, and you pilot the G6155 Interceptor sports car, right? It's got like machine guns in the front of it, and you have to basically 
just haul ass up this endlessly scrolling highway, avoiding civilian traffic and doing combat with all these like evil dark blue spy cars coming up at you. And some of them will be in front of you, try to make you crash into them. Some of them have razor blades on their wheels, try to hit you, make you spin out. Some of them roll up and some dude leans out with a shotgun, tries to blast you. Like they're coming at you from all directions, right? And as you're going along, you bump them off the road. You, you actually, it's a pretty complicated game. You have a steering yoke and you have a gas pedal, the high speed and low speed gears thing. You have triggers and all that. So it's like, there's a lot going on here. There are two versions of it. There's a stand-up version, which is what you saw most commonly, but there was a sit-down version of it, which was super cool. Like there are some games like Afterburner and Star Wars and Spy Hunter that you sat down in this like big pod like the game surrounded you and you're driving around like what is going on here and you got the speakers behind your head it was super immersive but the stand-up game is the one i remember the most 1987 i was 17 years old and i actually got a chance to go visit the soviet union it was a school trip and it was this big 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 deal my parents were like this is a huge thing you get to do it's a big honor um this is going to change your life you're going to see things really huge and keeping in mind 1987 Cold War is still going on, but it's just about to end. Tail end of the Reagan era. This is, you know, Rocky Three, right? America's the good guys. So you know, the evil bad guys. There's all that kind of stuff going on. But I actually had a chance to go over there and see what it was like in person. And it, was a, it was actually, in many ways, a deeply formative trip for me. It was the kind of trip in which I could see with my own eyes just how much the Russian people were ready for something different, and especially kids my age. So early in our trip, we stayed in a large youth hostel in... St. Petersburg. Back then it was called Leningrad. And the hostel had this rec center where kids could get together and hang out. But like all things Soviet, it was not particularly fun. You know, like the soda was all flat and had bugs floating in it. There was a really grim like Russian matron sitting by the door acting as both like a human change machine and a hall monitor, right? Like make sure you weren't having too much fun. There was an old foosball game. There was like an air hockey table that barely worked. And there was a TV showing some kind of weird Soviet puppet show. And I'm like, dude, even preschoolers are not dumb enough to fall for this. What, what's going on? But they had a few examples of what passed for state-of-the-art Soviet video games, right? And these things sucked. I mean, they were, ter- they were terrible. Uh, they were years behind American and Japanese designs. And they had this really crude design. A lot of them felt like these clumsy half iterations beyond Pong. Like, I remember this one game where you had this, like, this paddle you fire it off and it goes spinning around you try and knock off you know pieces i'm like this game is so stupid and finally i got so good at it in like five minutes i walked away from the game halfway through I'm like this is boring and the kid the russian kid behind me is like what are you doing and he like jumped on the game like you walked away from a game you know and and i remember all these russian kids were in this arcade and they're like they're just they're in 1981 as far as getting their heads around what it means to play video games and i'm it's like 1987 i'm like got a PhD in this stuff already. It's like what I do, you know? And I'm looking at these games and these are just so, they're just so crap, right? And I was like, ugh. But then I see it. At the end of the, of the row, there is a Spy Hunter game, right? And how and why it got there of all places, I will not know, okay? Leningrad was a fairly Western city by Soviet standards. And here and there, you did see examples of Western culture sort of popping up. And so it doesn't get more Western than a Spy Hunter game, right? And all the kids there were like gobsmacked by this game. They're like, whoa. I mean, it was so, so far beyond anything else in the arcade. And, like, and they're playing and they're just, they're getting their clocks clean. They're just like, you know, lambs to the slaughter. These kids do not know what they're doing. And so I'm like, okay, you know what? Back up. And I was like, hang on. And I get one coin, I'm like, boom. And I put it in there, boom, right? 
thing thing comes on all of a sudden the, the music Thank you very much, Henry Mancini. Oh, yeah. well, this, you know, that, that music was so great. People, like, at that time, we didn't know it as the Peter Gunn theme. We knew it as the Spy Hunter that's theme, right? right? It was, that's, that's, so the Spy Hunter theme goes on, I'm like, oh, yeah, let's do this thing. And I hit start, and it all comes back. And I'm playing, and I'm going by, and I'm knocking guys off. I get in the weapons van, come out, oil slick. Oh, yeah. People are like, okay, we've seen this before. And I'm moving along, moving <laughs> along. And then I get the second oil weapon van. It's like, ha-ha, get in there, smoke screen. Like, what is this? And I'm moving along. And then- I got a bulletproof car. Oh, now. yeah. It's, oh, it's going crazy. And then at one point, the road uh, goes into a boathouse, and your car transforms into a speedboat. And you're on the water. And the Russian kids are like, what madness is this? They're like, there's like, what? They had not seen this before. And I'm going along and just like flying around. I'm jumping over islands and they're like losing their mind, right? I come back on. I get the third weapons van, surface to air missiles. Like, what's what? Huh? And then helicopters coming around. I'm like, boom, helicopter down. Wow, boom, helicopter down. Oh my God. The kids are going bananas. The whole arcade's watching me play me, and I'm having the best Spy Hunter game of my life. I mean, that was the thing. It's that like, I normally did not do this well, I was just in the zone. You just got in the zone and you had an aberrantly good game. Well, I happen to have an aberrantly good game in front of a crowd that was really, really, really into this, you know, and it was just, and we're just, it was going to go on forever. And that's when it happened. I'm going, all of a sudden, and the game just loses power. I'm like, what the hell? And I looked up and that grim babushka at the door is literally holding the power cord. She pulled the plug on the game on me. And like just cut it off. And she's like, she's like, like, too much commotion, play too long, you need to go. And just like throws me out of the arcade. And I was like, well, how Harrison Bergeron is this, man? I'm like, okay, of course, you know. It's <laughs> <laughs> like Vonnegut reference. Yeah, it's like, it. oh, you know, you're too good. You gotta get out. And I'm like, man, I'm like, okay, fine, I'm like, fine, you know what? Whatever. And I'm like, in my back of my mind, I'm like, they know an American did this. I'm like, America, baby, I'm out of here. And it's the only time I ever You're John Galt. <laughs> Seriously, it's the only time I ever felt super like chest thumpingly proud to be an American, you know, just like in the face of like foreign influence. And the only time I ever got kicked out of an arcade for being too good, but I will wear that badge proudly until the day I die. And that is my Spy Hunter story. And that is why I will always love that game, but why I will also always love the arcade experience because it would bring up those kinds of unique experiences. And video games in general do this. I mean, when you have the, you play them long enough, you have these great game experiences. Everybody has their best video game experiences that they can remember. There's that one game, like when Tom beat Blues, and it was just this big legendary moment. And you, you remember the best game of your life. When you had your best game of your life on one of these things, it was a really cool moment, a really cool experience. Oh, God, I'll never, I'll never that forget is, it. That is a tough game to have a really good game at. I it mean, is. there is so much going on in that game. And like, you're always also balancing like you know if you go too fast all of a sudden you pass this threshold where if you hit things you die rather than just you yeah. know bump them off into you know the side of the screen or something like that that is a very very difficult game in my opinion i, I i've had good games and <laughs> but like for the longest time the speedboat was like a myth to us because we didn't have one long <laughs> yeah long. we had to go to the mall for that one <laughs> and, you know like Oh my God! Wait, you turn into a speedboat? It was like <laughs> well, we thought like somebody was making that up. Yeah, right. <laughs> and that's a whole new topic, though. All those myths, all those you know stories about video games. You know, this was pre-internet, and they they just spread by. Yeah, yeah. they spread on school buses. Yeah, exactly. I guess. Well, I got on the boat. Shut up! You did not. Yeah, there was that summer camps. Uh, yeah. 
I have a whole blog post about how annoyingly you, you couldn't get the diamond to show up in Mr. Do unless you were playing by yourself. Yes. You know, like <laughs> nobody would witness it, you know. Oh my but, God, yes. That is so true. And, and, and the diamond, so the diamond Mr. Do was a weird thing because it was actually, it was a rare thing where it gave you a whole free game, right? And so it dropped and, and I have played a lot of Mr. Do in the years since, like on emulators and whatnot. And I seriously do not know what it takes to make it a, a, a diamond drop. It happens once in a blue moon. And when you see it, you're like, I have to get it. Even when you're playing the game for free, you're like, I got to get the diamond. When you've got a quarter on the line, it's like, oh my God, get it at all costs. And when you get it, you're like, I got the diamond. And I remember one time I got it in a pizza place and my brothers were there and they, they were just turned around. I'm like, you guys, I got the diamond. And they... They didn't. No, you didn't. Yeah, they, no, you didn't. And I'm like, but I have the credit here. Like, you just put a quarter in. I'm like, oh man, like just arrow yeah. in my heart, you know. Can <laughs> anybody witness the diamond? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you talk about um, Spy Hunter, and it was an example of of these games that from year to year they would continue to ramp up their complexity. I mean, it's only a year from pole position to Spy Hunter. <laughs> That's pretty amazing right? to think about. You know, like, yeah. I, I think pole position is 82 and Spy Hunter is 83. And so you right. go from, oh, this is a really cool racing game. I'm going to go fast and go around things to all of a sudden I'm going fast and going around things. And there's this interaction with other stuff where I've got to go in a van and get the upgrades. Four different that. kinds of weapons, with yeah. each with their own control. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I do have a steering yoke and I'm digging it. Oh, yeah. Steering was <laughs> awesome. I'll just drive around, just the machine guns, like, I'll just shoot him to hear the sound, you know? <laughs> and it was, that game was so tough because because you had the gas pedal and so you had to modulate how fast you're going. You had the high gear, low gear, and like you couldn't go so fast, you're going to crash and everything you pass. You couldn't go so slow that the bad guys could catch up and slash your tires. And you were constantly trying to find this Goldilocks zone and it was really tough. Wasn't it also the first game that had like a penalty for shooting the wrong people? No, I guess Robotron would have been. You could, well, no. Right. Uh, well, you couldn't shoot the civilian cars. They wouldn't take points away. In, okay, so in Spy Hunter, yes, if you shot civilians, you lost points. The way it worked is as you're going along, your points are constantly racking up, and you got more points for taking out bad guys. If you knocked out a civilian, you had a penalty, and you weren't, knock, you weren't racking up points for a few seconds, and then it came back on. That never stopped me from knocking motorcyclists off the road because I loved watching them you know, flip around. I just – it was, it, it was my first experience of like grand theft auto level sociopathy and like motorcyclists they always just they got to go but but robotron As a motorcyclist i'm trouble yeah, well they don't play near me man but robotron was like you're running around trying to collect people and you're trying to rescue them and, and you couldn't shoot them but you could fail to rescue them so it's kind of like defender where you know a person gets picked up you couldn't really destroy them necessarily but you could fail to save them so it was a little different this is like you can choose to be a bad guy you know what sorry the family truckster's got to go because i need that room that bow I mean, he just took him out like sorry guys i'll see you later <laughs> clark you know he just went around him and i never i, I never had a rocky four moment thanks <laughs> by we, we were told like you are going to be on your best behavior you are cultural ambassadors for the united states and you will be <laughs> you'll be exceptional you know guests and all that i'm like okay sure and i remember walking out of the arcade and my one friend looked at me he's like that's the greatest thing i've ever seen i'm like you're welcome america <laughs> like it's like did you turn around and tell them if that if they can better to be an ambassador than to just show everybody how the game i was like played. i was like yeah I like you like what you see come on over to the west we've got them all over the place okay these games are everywhere and they won't pull the plug on you neither <laughs> bill's doing captain america videos for uh 
you know, local Soviet kids and <laughs> Dude, <elk>. seriously. <laughs> I see the Baba Yaga unplugging the machine and Bill turns around and he's like, if we can <laughs> well, change. I mean, that whole trip was, I mean, gosh, that trip was a really amazing trip I took. I was, I was a 17-year-old kid and I was deeply afraid of doing something that's going to get me in trouble over there. This is the sort of thing where like, I was just playing hard. I wasn't trying to wreck the game. I wasn't swearing. I wasn't banging the machine. I was just having a great game. And the thing is, one thing I noticed very quickly at that time was that large crowds of people gathering together to do something that made them happy was deeply frowned upon by anybody in authority <laughs> right like there are a couple there are a couple other situations like that like one time we're all out in the red square we started singing the beatles and the cops were like you need to stop right now like okay fine i guess fun is outlawed and they're like yeah fun is outlawed it's the soviet union read the sign you know but the spy <laughs> hunter thing was like that was just you know i couldn't have done it again if i tried it was just that game that time it was all just firing for some reason you know <laughs> it was just like I felt like I had bragging rights against an entire country, and I will never capture that feeling ever again. I never will. I just it, you know. But that's there are some small countries out there, dude. I could go down and play Street Fighter Alpha Two for ten years in Costa Rica, and I would still never have the feeling of cultural superiority I have when I had my Spy Hunter game interrupted mid game <laughs> on me. You know, but but that's that's the way that's the way it is. That's the way it is. Before we wrap up, a final thought. So when I came home from my trip to the Soviet Union, I reflected on all those things that I saw and did over there. And I had a fresh appreciation for what it meant to be an American and how different other parts of the world could be. But I also remember that Spy Hunter game. And I took some satisfaction in knowing that the entire world didn't actually get to experience this initial wave of arcade games the way that I did. I you know, was one of the lucky ones. I got to experience something special and be there at the start of it all, which is really kind of cool. But the great thing about computer and video games is that even though this chapter of their history could not last forever, that meant that their story was only just beginning. My kids have come to love a bunch of the games we've talked about in this episode just on their own, simply by being exposed to them. Even when growing up in an age of Nintendo DS and Playstations and PC gaming rigs, you know, they would see things like track and field and mappy and decide that they're worth their time too, just on their own merits. And that's perhaps what I love most about a lot of these old games is that they're primitive by today's standards. But as you know, Pablo Picasso once proved by drawing a perfect circle freehand, simple doesn't mean easy. You know, and a great game is always a great game, no matter how old it is. And you know, I may love putting in my hours on the PS4 or on my laptop, but I will always be just as happy to play a game for which I once gained know, a little thrill of excitement to feel a quarter fall from my fingertips, go into the coin slot of the cabinet, hear it fall down through the machine's innards and trip some switch to invite me to hit this flashing player one button. You know, for me, that thrill will never get old. And there isn't a video gamer alive, regardless of age, for whom their first memories of their earliest games won't always elicit something similar for as long as they live. And that's not nostalgia. That's, that's more like magic. So... Chris, Joe, Tom, thank you so much for dropping in today. It was great to have you on the show. Thanks to everyone for listening. And we'll see you again here on Moments of Truth. Bye now. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com.